Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, so good to see you. We're continuing our study this morning, our series on the book of Hebrews. And uh, we come to a very, uh, in my view, a very rich passage, and one that maybe uh, we haven't heard preached on as much, um, so I'm real excited about talking about this this morning. But just to lead into it, the answer is yes. Molly and I really enjoyed the Super Bowl last weekend. In fact, last Sunday, uh, somebody said to me, Mike, can you go the whole service without mentioning the Super Bowl? Which I did, but I have to mention it today. We always love it. I thought the game was riveting. I thought it was awesome. I had no dog in that hunt. I didn't care who won, but I thought, man, what a, what a great football game. Always enjoy the commercials. They were fabulous. And then the halftime show took, took us back to hip hop in the 90s. And it was just, just an amazing spectacle. It was great. We were riveted. We had all kinds of good food and, uh, and just loved it. But uh, one of the, the fascinating things to me about the Super Bowl was how occasionally the camera would zero in and you would find out who was at the, at the Super Bowl. Like who else was there in that stadium as part of this spectacle? So sure, at halftime we got to see um, Dr. Dre, we got to see um, Mary, Mary J. Blige, we got to see Snoop Dogg, we got to see Eminem, and so... Those were some of the luminaries that were there and they were you know, singing for the halftime show. But then I would, I would love it when the camera would, would, would pan, there were other people there. You know Sean White was there? He's like the snowboard guy that does the flips and everything from the Olympics. So he, he got to go to the Super Bowl, which was awesome. Uh, LeBron James was there. I saw him uh, with his entourage. And did you notice that Jay-Z was there? Jay-Z, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I saw Beyonce. I may have missed her. Uh, I hope those two are doing okay. Hope there's no problems with them. And then, and did you know, Ben Affleck was there with J-Lo. Like, did you know they were back together, Ben Affleck and J-Lo? It was just like, a, there's all these, all these people there. And that is the amazing thing about, uh, about streaming and about, being able to watch football anywhere in the world and YouTube and all of that. 
And it was really something to not only see the game, but to sort of have the curtain pulled back to see like who were the luminaries were there at that, that were there at that game. Well, uh, the writer to the Hebrews did not have, uh, when, when he wants to show us something, he doesn't have the benefit of a live stream, he doesn't have the benefits of a YouTube channel. And yet he wants, to, he wants us to see something. He wants us to see these, this amazing scene that is depicted, in fact, these two scenes that are depicted in Hebrews chapter 12. And in a way, what happens here is that despite the fact that there's no live stream, the fact, despite the fact that there is no YouTube, you and I have the opportunity, if you will, to travel back in time to Mount Zion and what it was like when the people of Israel were there at Mount Zion. And then we, not, no, Mount Sinai, excuse me, that was Mount Sinai. And then we have the opportunity to travel further into the future to see Mount Zion. And you've got these two mountains that are there. So we're gonna talk about that today. There's, uh, in the word of God, there's, he can take us back because of the, of the written word of the scriptures, but he wants us to see it. And it is no less real and no less true than the Super Bowl. In fact, it is more real and it is more true and it is more significant and it is more epic. Now, this passage has these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. We're gonna to get to that in just a moment, but I wanna take a moment and talk about who this sermon is for. Because I'm looking out over uh, a bunch of people in this room and I actually believe that the fact that you are here is not an accident. There are no accidents with God. You are here for a reason. If you're watching online this morning, I believe that God has a reason that you are watching this sermon and the reason that, you all, that we're all looking at this passage of scripture. So who is this for? Well, uh, one group of people that is really dear to me in our church, and that is the people that, are, that attend our church who are exploring Christianity. Some of them are spiritual seekers. They know that they don't yet know Christ, but they're exploring the gospel. And I'm so grateful for you. There might be others in our church who maybe were raised in a religious environment but have still never experienced conversion, who've never experienced salvation. And so this message is for you this morning and I believe that this passage uh, takes us back and describes salvation in a way that we'll never forget. But secondly, there's a second group of people that I'm thinking about who this message is for and that is believers in Christ who are running the race, who are in the journey of the Christian life. One of the risks that we have as Christians is the risk of what the book of Hebrews calls drifting. We can drift in our faith, and it takes many forms. We can become apathetic, we can drift away from Christ, we can drift away from the church. For some of us, it actually means drifting into sin and back into rebellion against God, and the book of Hebrews warns about, about that. We talked about that previously in Hebrews chapter 12. But there are others of us who uh, fall back into what we might call self-righteousness. We learned about, we came to, to Christ by faith, by grace through faith, and yet there's a tendency in the human heart to fall prey to this, uh, this pandemic that has existed since the fall 
of works righteousness and we can fall back into legalism and Phariseeism. So this gospel, this passage is medicine, whether, you're, whether the drifting is towards sin or the drifting is towards legalism, this passage is here to set us free. So I wanna speak to that group of people as well. And then I wanna, I wanna say something bold right now. I wanna express to you a sincere desire of my heart and that is that this passage for every one of us in this room that it would revolutionize our understanding of corporate worship and worshiping God. So it's a pretty tall order in this passage. So let's dive into it, shall we? We see in this uh, brief passage of scripture two mountains. One is Mount Sinai. It is, uh, it, it, it ta he's taken us back, you know, this, his version of YouTube, he's taken us back to Exodus chapter 19. That is the chapter before the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's Mount Sinai. The second mountain that's mentioned in this passage is Mount Zion. Mount Zion, that's the heavenly Jerusalem, that is the heavenly city. So there are these two mountains here. So one of the easiest ways to remember this sermon and to understand this passage is to recognize that there are two mountains. There's Sinai and there's Mount Zion. But those two mountains represent several things. One, there is a contrast between law and gospel, or law and grace. And so we're gonna see that contrast in this passage. There's a contrast between Moses and Jesus, because Moses gave the law. We see throughout Hebrews that Jesus was superior to Moses. And there is a contrast between what Hebrews calls the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So as we go through this, if the Bible's kind of new to you, and you don't spend a lot of time reading it, or you're not familiar with it, I want to acknowledge that there will be some terms like Mount Sinai and Mount Zion that are like geographic that you might not be as familiar with, but I want to unpack those and explain those. And things like the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Law and Gospel. So let's talk about that first mountain for a minute. This is mountain number one. Let's just call it the Mountain of Law, the Mountain of Law. In Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18, I want you to look at that passage with me for a moment and see what's here. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched. And so what he's referring to is uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 was a literal mountain that if you were there, you, you, could, you could actually touch it. So it was a mountain that could be touched. But look at what he says that was happening because God appeared to them at Sinai before he gave the law, before he gave the Ten Commandments. He said, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. So do you get the picture? Are you able to go back in our sort of YouTube view of this passage and see what is going on at Mount Sinai when the people of God are here and God appears to them? A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. So you've got this sort of raging mountain with the presence of God. And this verse, then verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet, so you probably have here angels blowing trumpets and the trumpets of judgment, sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg 
that no further messages be spoken to them. The hearers were the people of God, the people of Israel that had been saved out of Egypt after the Passover, crossing of the Red Sea, and there they were, but they're hearing the voice of God in a certain way. They're experiencing the holiness of God so that when God spoke, they just begged, Moses, we want you to speak in God's place. We cannot bear the, the voice of God that we're hearing. And then verse 20 says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. In other words, this mountain, if they had gone near to God, they would have perished. It says that even a beast, even an animal, if it touched that mountain, it would, should be stoned and it would perish. Verse 21 says, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So how's that for good news on a President's Day weekend, looking at this, this mountain? What, is, what do we learn from this, this mountain, and why is, it, why is it mentioned in this passage? Well, one of the things you see at Mount Sinai, and it's important that we, that we visit this, it's important that we realize that Mount Sinai is part of the redemptive story, and therefore it's part of our story. What is all these like, the thunder and the, the lightning and the storms and all that's going on in this passage, what does it represent? What do we learn about the nature of God and the character of God as it is revealed at Mount Sinai? Here's what we learned. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is a holy God. He is a perfectly holy God. What that means is that sin cannot even come into his presence. Did you notice that there were flames of fire? Later on in Hebrews chapter 12, it says our God is a consuming fire. So his perfect holiness is such that if sin came into his presence, it would just be consumed. We see a dramatic picture here of a holy God. Not only that, but we see a picture here of God the judge, a God of justice. Now, a lot of us believe in justice, but and where do we get our notion of justice but from God himself because we were made in his image. But God is a just God. I think it was a speaker I'd heard years ago said that justice is the application of equity to a moral situation. God is just, God is a judge, and so he has to judge sin. That is part of his nature, that is part of his character. So let me ask you a question about this view of God, this vision of God of perfect holiness and perfect justice. How does that make you feel, and what do you, what do you think of that? Well, what happened with Moses is that Moses said, I tremble with fear in the presence of God. Why did he tremble? Because God is holy and because God is just. And the problem was not with God, the problem was with human beings. The problem was with Moses, the people of Israel, the problem was with us. Isaiah 59 verses one and two says that your sins have made a separation between you and God. So the message of Mount Sinai is we cannot approach God. We cannot approach God in our own strength and in our own righteousness. Now, how do, how do people, I mean, you don't hear a message like this these days. You, you, just, you just don't, it's not common to think of God in this way. So how do we bridge the gap between us and God? Well, 
there are sort of humanistic and religious ways of bridging that gap. One of the, things, one of the ways that people kind of discard a passage like this is they want to dumb down our understanding of God. They want to say God is not like that. My God is not like that. There are people that might say, I don't really believe in a God that's that holy. I don't believe that God is a consuming fire and we can dumb it down. Back when I was uh, in college, there was a band by the name of Jethro Tull. One of their albums, on the back of that album, it paraphrased the book of Genesis, chapter one, and it said, in the beginning, man made God in his image. So one of the things we can, one of the ways of handling this gap is just to make God into what we want him to be. So he's a doting grandfather. He was just kidding about all of that justice and holiness and righteousness. Someone has once said that the religion of, religion of America is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now what do we mean by that? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, deism means that God got things started, but he's not active in the world today, and he's certainly not a God who is a judge. That's one of the ways we can dumb him down. And then moralistic, therapeutic deism, the fact that God exists to make us happy, church exists to just, just make us happy, nothing wrong with that, with happiness per se, except for the route that we get there, especially if it skips over the gospel. And then there's nothing wrong with moralism e either, except the fact that it misses the point that we're not even able to approach the mountain. We're not even close. It's, it, it, and so moralism means I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. Surely I'm good enough. So, um, but this passage presents a holy God. Now, we're gonna go to the next mountain, but it's important to sit at this mountain and to, to really feel that and to understand what God is like, that God is perfectly holy and God is perfectly just. You and I will never understand grace. You and I will never understand our need for a savior. You and I will never understand the gospel. You and I will never understand what it means to be a Christian until we understand that God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. God made us in his image. We don't get to create our view of God. I actually believe that the universe would be an awful place if God were not holy. I believe the universe would be an awful place. The world would be a worse place if God were not just. You guys, these are good, good attributes of God. You don't wanna divide God up and say, well, I really like the love part. I really like the grandfather part, but I just don't know how I feel about the, the holiness and the justice part. Don't divide God up. Because God reveals himself for who he is, and you and I were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so what's, what's really beautiful about the Bible is it takes this, this beautiful picture of God and unites his attributes. I wanna to go to the second mountain though right now. I wanna talk about the mountain of grace. We talked about the mountain of law. The second one is the mountain of grace. Now I wanna give a little bit of a, kind of a hinge though between these two mountains. And that hinge is a song that was written by, or a hymn, that was written by John Newton called Amazing Grace. It's one of the most 
famous hymns ever written, Amazing Grace. I want to remind you of what it says in that hymn, because John Newton, John Newton loved the holiness and justice of God, because it led him to Christ. John Newton wrote this in the song, Amazing Grace. He said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Now, if you're a believer in Christ today, you're not coming to Mount Sinai, you're coming to Mount Zion. So let's talk about where we have come. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. The word but is there, which means it's a contrast. What the writer to the Hebrews is doing is he wants his readers to see this contrast. He wants to, back to the YouTube analogy, he wants them to see the contrast between these two mountains, and he really wants to, to take them there. In the book of Hebrews, the readers, because of, of persecution, Roman persecution, readers in Italy and Rome, are tempted to go back to the old covenant. They are tempted to go back to the law. They are tempted to go back to Sinai. And so the writer here is letting them know the distinction between Sinai and Zion between law and grace. So let's look at this mountain of grace, beginning at verse two. Would you look there with me? It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. Now what's he talking about here? Well, one of the things that's happening is he is pulling back the veil. That's why I entitled this sermon uh, to pull back the curtain. He is pulling back the curtain for us, and he's, he's enabling us to see where we have come. I want you to notice verse 22, it says, but you have come. Catch that phrase, remember that phrase, but you have come. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. What that means, it is a past completed action with ongoing results in our lives. So I said at the beginning of the sermon that he's gonna take us to the future, but what what the gospel does is it brings the future into the present. You have come. When he talks about uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, when he talks about the city of the living God, what he's saying is you and I have come to that. You came to church today and you have come to that place. So what the kingdom of God does, what the gospel does, what indeed redemption does for us, one of the things is it brings the future kingdom into the now and into the present. So he can say, you've already come to Zion. You've already come to Jerusalem. Zion in the Old Testament was referred to the city of David where Jerusalem was eventually built and where the temple was originally built. So when he uses these words, the city of the living God, when he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem and he's talking about Zion, those three are all synonymous. And what he's doing here is he's saying you have come to it and the gospel brings the future, brings the future into the now and brings the future into the present. Not only that, but the Bible also teaches that we are an outpost of heaven on earth. The Lord's prayer says thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the gospel not only brings the future into the present, but it brings heaven to earth. And so what it's saying in this passage as he's pulling back the curtain is that you have come now to heaven. He wants us to see 
that we are tasting of the powers of the age to come. This is really, you guys, an amazing passage. This is why I believe it ought to transform our view of worship. So verse 22 is not all. He says, we've also come to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. Now when the book of Revelation talks about angels, it talks about myriads and myriads of angels. The angels were there at the birth of Christ. Uh, Hebrews 1 talks about angels. They are ministering spirit, the angels are true. But what this passage is teaching here is that the angels are in feastal gathering. What that's talking about is a celebration. What that's talking about is a, a great joyous holiday. What that's talking about is a celebration when the people of God come together and then go out and have a picnic together. That's what it's saying here. When we come in here and you look around the room, what he wants to let us know is that while we are singing to God, the angels are also singing, they are with us. And when I was a young Christian, I heard a speaker say one time that when you come to church, when we gather in corporate worship, that we are singing with angels, in, and he used the term, in festive array. That was the New American Standard translation. In festive array, and that revolutionized my view of worship, because when I come in here and I'm sitting here and I'm singing the songs, and Mark and the band are leading us, what's going on here is that that I'm singing with the angels. We have a choir in this room and the angels are there. You have come to that perfect tense, angels in feastal gathering. Then look at verse 23, who else is there? This is so much better than the Super Bowl. Super Bowl had all these luminaries and all these famous people, but it's saying our Super Bowl, which is very inadequate term to use, but our worship service with heaven includes the living God who is here at work in our lives, there goes the whole deism thing, and it includes innumerable angels. And then look at verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The word assembly, I looked it up this morning. The word assembly is ecclesia, which is the biblical word for church. And so when we come here, when we come here to our little Lake Baldwin church, what it's saying is that we are also uh, enjoying the communion of the saints who have gone before us. Even the saints that were at Mount Sinai, because their hope, though they never experienced Jesus Christ coming, they still waited for him, they had the sacrifices, they had the lamb, they had the gospel proclaimed to them, they had a preview of the gospel, and so their salvation, as was ours, was by faith, and they are made perfect by faith in Christ. And so you've got this assembly of the firstborn. The firstborn, Christ was the firstborn, the only son of God, but now we are all children of God. We all share in the rights of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So those that are enrolled in heaven, the Lamb's Book of Life, enrolled in heaven, you've got this, what's, what's called the church triumphant. In other words, the church that has overcome the ravages of the fall. The church has experienced redemption, and they are now the church triumphant, and they are in heaven, and they're part of the choir. They're, they're here too. They're singing here too. Enrolled in heaven, and we've come to God the judge of all. So now we come back to the fact that God is still the judge, that 
the God at Mount Sinai is also the same God who is at Zion. We don't divide God up. We don't say <clears throat> the fun God is in the New Testament, the grandfather God is in the New Testament, but gosh, the Old Testament God was mean. No, we have one God and he is still the judge of all. But for those who are believers in Christ, the song, like the song says, those whose hope, whose trust in Christ is, for them, justice smiles and asks no more because justice, God's judgment against sin, was poured out on Christ at the cross. So we don't have to dumb God down. We don't have to have, have, have him be a doting grandfather, but he is still who he, he is, and as we come before him with confidence and boldness, it's because of what Christ has done for us. And then he goes on, he says, God the judge of all, the end of verse 23, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So what, what's, what does that mean, the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Well, when people die, they go to be with Christ. They are in what is known as the intermediate state. They are not reunited yet with their bodies because that will happen in the resurrection. We sang this morning, I believe in the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, but also the future resurrection of the bodies of all the saints. But right now they're in heaven, but then they're the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now that phrase, the spirits of the righteous make, made perfect, contains the gospel, and I'll tell you why. I've mentioned earlier that my mom died of cancer back in 1982. She died on, on Christmas Eve of 1982. But I remember she went through like 10 years of all kinds of different kinds of illness. And I remember my dad saying about my mom, he would be so sad and understandably so for all the medical things she was going through. And my dad would say that she never sinned, that she was, a, you know, she was such a good person that my mom never sinned. Well, I could see why he would say that, but there's nobody perfect. There's nobody perfect. There's nobody who, about whom you could say they have never sinned. So when my mom opened her heart up to Christ and put her faith in Christ on her deathbed, it was at that moment that God the judge declared her righteous. And so I can say now, not on the basis of her goodness, not on the basis of what she has done, but on the basis of what Christ has done, she is declared perfect, she is declared righteous. That is amazingly good news for all of us here. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then verse 24, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. So why is Jesus the mediator of a new covenant? What is going on with that? Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Jesus, our, our high priest, our great prophet, our great king, Jesus died on the cross. John the Baptist had said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when Christ died on the, on the cross, it was a cosmic event. I wish we could have YouTube now and go back and see it. But the Bible describes it for us. It says that the temple of God, which Sinai is like the tabernacle and like the temple, there was this veil that would keep people from having access to God and only the high priest could go in and only on the basis of sacrifices and the people could not approach God, just like at Mount Sinai, just like we talked about earlier. But when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. That's grace, that means that God did it. And so really, 
It was torn away. The whole, the whole curtain was, was pulled back and now we can have access to God because Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, a better covenant. And then it says to the, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, my favorite hymn is a, is a hymn that was written by John Newton who also wrote Amazing Grace, but it's called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I, I quoted it earlier. Each refrain in that hymn sings, he has washed us with his blood. And you might wonder, well, what is so significant about the blood of Christ? And why would, why would John Newton put that phrase in a hymn like that? Well, because that blood still speaks. The blood of Abel, Abel was the first person murdered. Remember the fall? He was murdered by Cain. And so his blood was in the ground. And Abel's blood spoke. And it cried out for the justice of God. Remember we said it's a good thing that God is holy and just? The blood of Abel. He was killed by Cain. And his blood cried out for justice and cried out for, for vengeance. And that was truthful. And that was right. And that was good. But it says here that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How does the blood of Christ do that? Well, remember he died on the cross and the blood of Christ speaks a better word. One, it speaks to God on our behalf. And it's like God is the judge, he is holy, he is just, but the blood of Christ is Christ saying to God, I died for that person's sins. I died for all of their sins and it totally changes everything. That blood speaks to God, but it also speaks to you and me. That blood speaks to our consciences. It speaks to those of us in the room who are despairing because of our sin. It speaks peace to our hearts. That is why in our worship service, when we have the confession of sin as we did today, which I loved, it's one of my favorite parts of the worship service because we get to we get to go to Sinai and acknowledge our sins, but then we stand for that gospel assurance. All of us need to remember what the reason we can have gospel assurance is because the blood of Christ speaks a word of grace instead of a word of vengeance. It speaks to our hearts better than the blood of Abel. So we're done. Two mountains. Two mountains here. So let me just take a few more minutes to land the plane with some application, may I, about this passage? You familiar with these two mountains now? So how does this apply to the person who's exploring the Christian faith, to those among us who are not yet believers? I said earlier that this passage really clarifies the gospel. Here's why. The gospel is both bad news and good news. And so the way to become a Christian is to see in Mount Sinai to realize that God is, is holy and I can never earn my own salvation. The way to salvation is to hear that bad news and to recognize that I'm a sinner who needs a savior and to believe that I need the gospel. A lot of people think that becoming a Christian is just going to church, just being good, um, that again, we're dumbing down the gospel, but we need to go to Sinai and we need to see the bad news. It's like, it's like, Realizing we need a doctor. We need to understand we're sick before we cry out for the, for the physician. And I will promise you this. If you're a spiritual seeker and you've never come to faith in Christ, or if you have doubts about that, what needs to happen is to go to Sinai and to see 
that God is holy, that God is just, that God is a consuming fire. And what that does when we get that is it makes us cry out for Jesus. It makes us wanna go to the great physician. It makes us want to have a savior who is a better savior than we are a sinner. So that's the good news, that's the gospel. And I, I really wanna appeal to you, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, that you would not take that for granted, that you would put your faith in Christ today. For those that are, uh, that are believers here, I mentioned earlier that some are drifting, and the Bible warns us about drifting away from God and drifting into sin or apathy or neglect. The, the whole book of Hebrews warns us about that. But this passage warns us that we can also drift back to the law, we can drift back to legalism. There's a lot of ways that we can do that, and one of the things I've observed, I've said this before, is that works righteousness or self-righteousness is a virus that mutates throughout the centuries. And I've noticed how easily it comes up in my own life. It's, how e it's so tempting to go back to Sinai because it makes us feel good. It gives us a way to judge other people. It makes us feel self-righteous. And so all of us as believers need to hear the good news for the found, the good news of the gospel, that we too come to this mountain of grace and that the basis of our acceptance with God and our acceptance with others is not our works righteousness. That will drive you to despair. And it creates a culture of judgment. We don't need that. We need the gospel of grace. But then the last thing I said that I was hoping that this passage would, re passage would revolutionize our view of worship. What happens in worship, if you think of a worship service with innumerable, innumerable angels in feastal gathering, if you picture the communion of the saints, the church triumphant with us, if you picture that environment, you think you, it, there, there is, we are gathering with them and what we go through in a worship service is this biblical story where we see God for what he's like in creation but we also go to confession, we experience the fall and so we're there at Mount Sinai, we see again the holiness and the justice of God but because of the gospel, because of his grace, we can invite God to dig around deeply in our hearts and we can repent of our sin and our pride. And then we experience the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that happens in our gospel assurance and that we live with this hope of restoration, the realization that we're all experiencing the coming kingdom, but we're also on that road to Zion. And every Sunday we experience that story. That is why the worship service is much more than the sermon. When we come in here and, and Mark leads us in that call to worship, that is the king, that is the judge, that is the living God inviting us into his presence. And we got this whole gospel story right to the very end where we leave with the hope of what God, where God is taking us in the future. So that revolutionizes our view of worship. John Newton said one more thing. I wanna leave you with this quote and we'll wrap up with this. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see how the gospel changes us to see the law of Sinai already fulfilled by Christ's perfect life and that to hear his pardoning voice, that blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel, changes a slave into a child. You and I are no longer slaves living in fear 
the church triumphant, the angels, they sometimes look down on us and they think, they think those people look like they've eaten prunes because they're not even singing with the songs. There's no joy, there's no celebration. I wanna encourage you. The gospel invites us into celebration. It changes a slave into a child and it changes duty into choice. Now the good things I do are out of gratitude and awe for the greatness of this God and I obey him not to earn my salvation but because I already have it. Men and women and congregation of Lake Baldwin Church, this is the secret sauce of our church. It is the secret sauce of Christianity. It is the secret sauce of the church throughout the ages. And it is no longer secret because this passage has opened up the curtain for us so that we could see this good news, this gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we bow before you as a God who is just and holy but who has also, by grace, given us a savior. All of us, Lord, all of us realize our need for a savior. Enable us to rejoice with the angels as a church in our salvation. There are glorious things that are spoken. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.